and welcome to Light On Life Through, episode number 69, Leno, Conan, and New New Media. Well, unless you've been living around Alpha Centauri or under a rock somewhere here on planet Earth, you have heard, of course, that Jay Leno is being moved, yanked, actually, from his 10 p.m. primetime spot on NBC back to his original Tonight Show spot at 11.30 p.m. NBC's original plan was to push Conan back a half an hour to 12 midnight. But Conan wouldn't have it, and he announced that he's leaving NBC. As a matter of fact, last night, Friday night, Conan said his final goodbyes. Well, a few days ago, on January 19, 2010, I was interviewed on KCPS Radio out of Burlington, Iowa, on the big show by Fred W. Hoffman about my views on this major development on NBC and other developments in television and media. And basically what I told Fred is that it doesn't matter what happens to Conan or Jay Leno, Wherever they go, they're basically fighting over chairs on a sinking ship. And that's not just because I'm a pessimist. As a matter of fact, I'm an optimist about media. But the reality is viewers are increasingly watching television through their computers, watching cable television when they used to watch network television. And for these reasons, I think we're seeing a profound sea change, to stay with the metaphor, in our television viewing habits. So I'm going to play for you the complete, oh, it's about 40 or so minutes of the discussion I had with Fred W. Hoffman, including about halfway into the interview some very interesting calls from some astute listeners. So I hope you enjoy it. Many of you will recognize recognize our next guest. Uh, He's not on the line yet, but I'll uh, preview him so you know to stay tuned. He is Dr. Paul Levinson, a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University, New York City. You might have seen him on the O'Reilly Factor, the CBS Evening News, or the News Hour with Jim Lehrer for you PBS snobs, Nightline also, other national TV shows. He's an award-winning author as well, and uh, a tremendously uh, talented writer in his own right. We'll have him on in just a few minutes from New York City. A good get, as they say in the interview booking business. And we're going to get his take on a variety of things, including the latest news from the Tonight Show debacle, NBC, and uh, Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno. Hello. Hi, is this Dr. Paul Levinson? Yes, how you doing? I'm doing just great. Paul Levinson, Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University, New York City. He's appeared on uh, several uh, TV shows where you might have seen him, The O'Reilly Factor, The CBS Evening News, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, and Nightline, among others. Also an award-winning author with, what, 20? How many books you got these days? Uh, actually, 16, but if you add in the translations, it's about 45. Perfect. So I was just about right. 
I appreciate you coming on this morning, and um, I want to get your take on a couple of things, and then I want to talk about, uh, just for a moment, your uh, uh, latest book, The New New Media, which I find fascinating. Um, uh, But first, I I booked you to uh, give us the professional take on what's going on over at NBC in this Tonight Show debacle, one of the one of the most important franchises uh, in television history, I would say, historically. Uh, what's going on over there? Well, to begin with, the problem is the franchise has obviously seen its better days. This has nothing to do with uh, Conan, with Leno, with NBC. What it has to do with is the decline of network television uh, as something that people would watch really any time, whether it's 10 o'clock in the evening or 11.30. What people are doing instead of that is they're watching cable television, they're going online, they're actually watching television shows, but uh, in increasing numbers, not on conventional broadcast television. So with that as a backdrop, what's really going on, if you uh, look at uh, the decline in ratings and NBC's move to, uh, to, to take uh, Leno out of the 10 o'clock hour, put him back at 11.30, O'Brien being so upset about it, everybody wringing their hands, is, uh, it's almost like passengers arguing about what the uh, best lounge chair is on the Titanic. Mm. The, the, the ship is going down. And, you know, it's sad, but on the other hand, this is the evolution uh, of media. Once upon a time, there was only hieroglyphics. There was no such thing as an alphabet. Once upon a time, people sent messages long distance through the telegraph. Right. So things change over time, and that's what we're seeing. Um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a really great take on it. Um, as as these things change, um, uh, this this sort of dovetails with your with your book in in a particular way. Uh, one of the things I uh, was impressed with was uh, you mentioning. Um, I think the word gatekeeper is what got my attention. Uh, all of us that are not um, uh, in the media, well, I guess uh, most of us are not in the media. Um, but in years past, you know, only certain people got on TV. Only certain people had an opinion that mattered to anybody. And now you have all this non-professional content out there, thanks to the Internet, and it has no gatekeeper. There's no one, there's no executive somewhere saying you're not talented enough to have a movie on YouTube. You know, you're not talented enough to have an opinion on my blog. None of these things are there. All the gatekeepers are gone, and the people are more or less in charge. That's completely right. And... Anytime you have a gatekeeper, you have two things going on. One is the public can have some assurance that what they're hearing, reading, seeing is more or less accurate. That's what the gatekeeper does. But at the same time, a lot of people, a lot of opinions, a lot of voices are kept out of the process because that's also what the gate does. It locks out a lot of information. That's the tradition we've come from. 
But as I point out in New New Media, it's really a much more democratic, free tradition to have the gates open and have anyone be able to put up a YouTube video, as you said, write a piece on a blog. You know, in a way, this began with talk radio, where people were calling in. And although there's a gatekeeper there, you know, the radio producer can say, hey, I don't want to let you go on the air. The uh, the disc jockey, uh, the on-air talent could basically end the call. But nonetheless, that was one of the beginnings of the people being able to express their views. So on that score, I think we're seeing one of the most revolutionary developments really in all of human history, in terms of, for the first time, anyone with a computer can get their opinions out there. That's amazing. Uh, our guest this morning is Dr. Paul Levinson, uh, 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 speaking now about new, new media as contrasted with the old new media. Uh, you make that distinction in the book. What is the old new media? Well, the old new media is what people were doing in 1995, 2000. We're still doing some of that today. When you buy a book on Amazon, when you buy a recording on iTunes, to use just two examples, although you're doing that on the web, those two media are very strongly gate-kept, right. because I may have a song, but that doesn't mean I can get it on iTunes. Actually, in my case, I have an album called Twice Upon a Rhyme that I uh, came out with in 1972. That is on iTunes, but most people don't have their songs on iTunes and don't have their books on Amazon. And Gmail would be another example, uh, and, and Gmail is actually an interesting case because Gmail is a major player both in old new media, that is just traditional email right. and new new media so email being the google mail server and and how is that instrumental in the new media well in new new media google is the uh, the, the actual place where people do an enormous amount of blogging. Uh, anyone who has a blog on blogspot is also known as blogger that's part of the google system and why do blogs have such influence at this time they have influence because anybody can express an opinion. And this really came about, for the most part, uh, for the very, very first time politically uh, in the 2004 campaign when people were saying, well, Howard Dean is the Internet candidate, and uh, an indication that it wasn't fully developed then, that is the new new media culture of blogging, is how badly Dean did in the primaries. And so he didn't really last past uh, Iowa. But by 2008... Just four years later, you had a hundred times the number of people. In some a little Howard Dean there for you. Blogging. Mm -hmm. um, and and but the, the the thing that's hard to understand about the blogs a little bit is, um, and we'll go back to network TV to to make the point. Uh, the shows the, the, these shows are valuable because of the mass audience uh, that they gather. And um, and, the, and the products and things that can be that can be sold to that audience. If you look at a, any given blog, because there are millions of them, literally, um, they don't have mass appeal. And so, if I publish a blog, it's like if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. Uh, is there a sound? It, many of these blogs would have to go under that category. No doubt, but it's just really simple arithmetic. 
if you have 100,000 blogs uh, and they each have five or 10,000 readers, well, then, you know, you're getting up into the millions of readers and you have an audience that can be comparable to something that's on network television. There's no doubt that network television still attracts millions of viewers, but its problem is it attracted many, many more viewers in the 70s and 80s. And now a good portion of these viewers are reading blogs, going on to YouTube, doing things that the sponsors on television are very unhappy about because this audience is no longer paying attention to their ads. This is Dr. Paul Levinson from New York City. He's the professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. Uh, he'll uh, answer some of your questions if you have them, uh, 753-KCPS. Um, I noticed in uh, Tom Shale's uh, article about this uh, Leno Conan uh, NBC thing uh, that he mentioned the movie uh, Late Shift. Do you remember that movie at all? Yes, I do. It was uh, one of those that set up sort of similar, eerily similar scenarios. Um, and this fighting over, in this particular case, is an NBC for sale or in the process of being sold at the moment, I think? Well, that's the Comcast deal. They're, right. they're pretty much sold. Uh, the deal just has to be approved by the uh, FTC. No one expects that they won't approve it. But one of the things, actually, that's uh, happening is that Leno and O'Brien are now seeing a nice, healthy increase in their ratings. This also happened to David Letterman when he was fortunate enough to be blackmailed, and he was savvy enough to make it public. People love a good story like this. So there's going to be a temporary boost in the ratings simply because of all this excitement. But uh, sadly, I think it's like a sugar fix, and it's not going to last all that long. I agree. Um, did you, uh, um, uh, do you have any history personally uh, with The Tonight Show? Did you watch Johnny? Did you watch Jay? Do you watch Conan? Well, I hate to tell you this. I watched Jack Parr. Even though <laughs> I was only two months old. <laughs> A little older than that. But absolutely, I watched uh, all of them. And I don't think Jay Leno is that bad that he deserved to do that badly at 10 p.m. I think it's still pretty funny. I watched part of the show last night. The, the problem is that uh, the 10 o'clock hour just doesn't work for Jay's brand of humor and his kind of show. Right. And it's interesting when you think about it, uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, they're doing great over on the Comedy Channel. And that's because they have a much more cutting-edge, politically acute kind of humor. Well, but they, they do great by a different audience number standard than a network television show, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. But the trajectories are much better, meaning they are then their ratings are improving right. almost all the time in contrast to. Uh, and again, this applies not only to NBC, all the networks going down, but probably by a factor of almost 10, I would think if a Tonight Show would have a 20 million uh audience or, or something like that, a, a cable show would have a million if it was doing well. That's exactly right, yes. And that's why it's also a mistake to say that traditional television is no longer important. It still is. But what I like to do is look at the graphs, look at the evolution, look, about, look at what's going up and what's going down. And although those things can be reversed, usually that's not the case. When a medium gets into a downward climb, a downward decline, it uh, almost never recovers. Hmm. 
Dr. Paul Levinson, our guest, uh, it seemed to me at the time uh, Leno um, had beaten Letterman for so long and so convincingly in that time slot. I never understood why they moved it in the first place. Why? What was the rush to move that? Well, this is, uh, of course, with the wisdom of hindsight, we can see what a bad move it was. But this is something that executives thought was a brilliant move for two reasons. One, they thought that Conan would actually increase Jay Leno's excellent ratings because Conan is younger and he might appeal to the uh, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert audience. And second, NBC was already doing very badly in prime time. And so they were hoping that by moving Leno to 10 o'clock and it's the same show five nights a week, that they could revolutionize prime time television. Look, I wrote a blog at the time and I said I applaud NBC for taking this risk. I, you know, I also said I'm not sure if it's going to work, but uh, I, I admire the fact that they tried to shake things up. Unfortunately, you know, it's like putting in a, a hitter. Uh, it, I, I wouldn't say it's, uh, you know, bottom of the ninth, two strikes out, but it's, it's getting pretty close to that. So they, they made a move in the lineup and it, it didn't work. I think further than that, I would be interested in your opinion, that when they move Leno back to his slot, it's not going to be the same. No, you're completely right. It's not going to be the same. Again, there'll be a temporary increase because people are so interested in this. That'll last maybe a month, uh, a little longer, and then we're going to see Leno's 11.30 p.m. show go down in the ratings as well. In fact, I'll say this. Five years from now, I don't know if Leno or O'Brien or any talk show will be on NBC. ABC's doing okay with Nightline. In fact, they're doing very well. They've picked up some uh, some ratings uh, in the past few months. And, again, as far as Letterman, unless he can get involved in some kind of other public scandal, uh, unless someone tries to blackmail him over something else, his ratings are going to go down as well. So you think, because I, I totally disagree with you on the NBC thing, only because they have such a stable of talk show hosts beyond even that time slot. I mean, they're, they're developing uh, Jimmy Fallon, and then beyond that, they got Carson Daly. I mean, they got a lot of people in house there. But uh, you're saying the whole genre is going out the window. That's right. I think what is working now, to the extent that anything is working on traditional network television, are two things. One, very traditional, the drama. Something like NCIS on CBS is doing great in the ratings. Now, it's still not doing as well as the hit shows of the 70s, but by today's standards, it's doing very well. It is attracting 20, 25 million viewers. And the other thing is the reality show. And I would advise NBC to put that kind of show on at 1130. The problem with the talk show is there are just too many other places you can get talk and comedy. That is something that the Internet with live streaming really excels in. But as far as great drama, Lost is going to come back for its final season on ABC on February 2nd. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the opening episodes of 24 yeah. on, on Fox. You know, th these are the things that are still attracting people, and that's, I think, the only chance that network television has to keep its head above water. Hmm. That is uh, that is an interesting argument, and I I don't know how I would disagree with it, but it just would seem like it would seem like there must be you know, you know how they've counted out 
radio or television over the years as things have advanced it it's it would seem hard to imagine that there wouldn't be some value to network television i think but i guess we can't discuss network television in my mind unless we discuss the news which is where they're really getting beaten in my opinion right now and that's really upsetting the apple cart what do you have to say about news the standard nightly newscast well, they're really getting hammered. Let me just say about radio. Radio did survive to everyone's surprise when television really came on strong in the 1950s, but that's because radio radically reinvented itself. In the 40s and the 30s, radio was playing soap operas, serials, dramas. Uh, television took all those forms over. In the 1950s, radio became a medium that played rock and roll. And the confluence of those two uh, media, rock and roll, the medium of music and radio, that's what succeeded. Uh, so that could happen if television did that. And now further... And now further uh, redefined with the whole talk radio thing, as you mentioned earlier, continues exactly. to change. That's right. Yes, and then talk show came, uh, talk radio came along and continued to revolutionize radio. As far as news is concerned, they are suffering the worst as far as network television. I mean, it's almost sad uh, when when Walter Cronkite died this summer. Uh, there were a lot of news stories that pointed out that Walter Cronkite, in his heyday, uh, along with the other. Uh, nightly news programs, wow, they would, could attract 50, 60 million viewers, wow. sometimes 70 million viewers. Now, if you put all three networks, all four networks together, you're lucky if you get you know, a total of 20 million, and that's on a good night. Hmm. And so uh, as, as the news thing falls off, and as you mentioned, uh, there's tremendous competition uh, with these cable channels, some of them, though, owned by the networks. Um, uh, but like you mentioned with, with a co uh, comedy, uh, there are a variety of places you can get comedy. Now it doesn't have to come from your network shows. And plus, uh, people like HBO put out very good television. Um, and, uh, TNT has got a couple of good new shows. The one with Ray Romano. I can't think of the name of it. Um, uh, men of a certain age, there are certain age, right? lots of good choices. And so the shakeup in numbers, uh, is going to go. I suppose it's going to even out to where all of these networks uh, are going to have respectable audiences in the 2 million to 10 million range, and, and they're not going to be any more 50 million uh, broadcasts, right? Yeah, that's pretty much almost happening already. It's going to get even worse than that. But I expect that network television will survive in some form. Legitimate theater would be an interesting example. Before motion pictures came along, Many, many more people, a much greater percentage of the population, especially in big cities, would go out to the theater to see a play. Hmm. Once motion pictures came along, they became much more popular than theater. Right. And, even, and then once television came along, motion pictures, they're still popular in that, a, you know, a, a movie like Avatar can attract a, a huge audience. But the average motion picture does not do as well today as it did, say, in 1950. That's an interesting progression as well. Uh, where does sports factor into all this on network TV at this at the present time, excepting ESPN, which occasionally gets things like they just got Monday Night Football this past year. Um, the big uh, sporting events take place on network television still. Sporting events are one of the last bastions, one of the last citadels of success for network television. So everyone is wondering what's going to happen when NBC 
host the Olympics. That's going to be just in a few weeks. And that could give NBC somewhat of a boost in the ratings. However, traditionally, even those kinds of events are not quite attracting as big an audience. The Super Bowl still remains uh, a behemoth in terms of attracting audiences. And that probably will continue uh, and what that suggests is there may be more of a future in the networks in putting on uh, a sporting event. The reason for that is, although if you're sitting and you have a little computer on your lap, you can enjoy a television show, if you're watching a sporting event, there's really nothing like a big screen. And the bigger the screen is, whether it's in your living room or in a bar, the better the experience. Caller, you have a question for Dr. Paul Levinson? Yes, good morning, doctor. Uh, very compelling interview. Uh, I just would like to have your opinion on how the business model of network TV might change here in the near future, especially with Comquest acquisition of NBC. I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Well, Comcast taking over uh, NBC will certainly lead to more of an equalization and more attention to cable uh, than is currently the case in that whole business operation. Now, NBC, of course, already has MSNBC and CNBC and various stations like, well, uh, the, the Sci-Fi Channel and other stations that uh, broadcast interesting content. You're going to see more development of that. So but Comcast is a cable company, right? Comcast is a cable company. Okay. That's right. And, um, but at the same time, there's going to be a profound change in the advertising approach. The, the mass market advertising, as we've already been discussing, is suffering on network television. But this doesn't mean that there won't be any advertising and that there won't be a growth in cable advertising and even advertising online. As more and more people watch their television through their computer, they are going to receive ads in a, in a different way. And there is one advantage of ads that people watch and read and hear online, and that's that you can very easily click on an icon that gets you to a place where you can buy a product. You can't do that on the television set. One of the problems with both television and radio is you hear the ad and then you have to go out into the real world and do something to basically spend the money. In contrast, when you receive an ad online, you can just get to the place if the ad has some kind of online component and buy the product, sign up for the service right there. So a lot of people are finding that those kinds of ads are more lucrative. Right now, the numbers still aren't there. But again, the trajectory is online advertising is increasing and advertising on network television is decreasing. Um, we've talked all about electronic media. We haven't mentioned newspaper. What do you have to say about the newspaper industry, if anything? Well, that's, you know, sort of sad for people who love newspapers, but it's part of the process. And, uh, I actually did a podcast about a month or two ago called Weep Not the Newspapers, because the decline of newspapers doesn't mean there's going to be a decline, uh, in news. Uh, blogs are picking that up. Uh, cable television is picking that up. You sometimes hear people say, well, what's going to happen uh, if newspapers keep declining? What's going to happen to the traditional investigative reporter? That's a good question. But uh, there's no reason that the Huffington Post 
eventually can't pay a traditional investigative reporter the same salary that the New York Times or the Washington Post might pay its reporters. So there will continue to be an urgent need for speedy, accurate news delivery, but it's already shifted from the paper newspaper to something that's available online, which, of course, is much more convenient. You know, you want to get the news. I can't remember the last time I learned about something for the first time by reading a newspaper. I mean, maybe if I was in a crypt for like a day and I came out <laughs> of it, the newspaper was right in front of me. But otherwise, you get it online or you hear it on the radio. Caller, you got a question for Dr. Paul Levinson? Yes, hi, good morning. I was just wondering, as far as, you know, specifically the news and, and all the networks, how is their political biases and affiliations um, affecting their viewers and, and their decline in viewers? Good question. Thanks. Go well, ahead, Doctor. First of all, again, to, to stress the point, I, I think that television is declining regardless of politics. Also, the election of 2008 was a great boost for television because it, people were interested in news about the candidates and the election. Uh, that said, if you look at uh, cable television and you look at the three all-news cable stations, which would be MSNBC, CNN, and Fox, uh, it's clear that Fox is doing the best, and that's in part because it's managed to connect with uh, a larger audience of people who agree with Fox's political point of view, which, by the way, is not fair and balanced. I don't know why they insist that they say it. Why they just come out and say, you know, we're conservative. Uh, MSNBC, on the other hand, uh, has a smaller audience. It has, in many cases, a blatantly progressive uh, political point of view. Uh, and it's interesting, it has not connected with as big an audience. And uh, I find this an interesting uh, phenomenon, because if you look at the election of 2008, or for that matter, the election of 2004 or even 2000, it's pretty much clear that uh, the progressive and conservative divide is 50-50 in this country. It's extremely close. Uh, and yet MSNBC does not have the ratings that, uh, that Fox has. Not nearly. I actually think that's because MSNBC wastes an enormous amount of time playing documentaries and canned footage rather than having uh, live television on the weekends. And uh, it, it's been doing a fine job. All the networks and cable shows have been doing a great job covering what's, what's happening in Haiti. But uh, MSNBC basically completely missed the boat in covering the Detroit near uh, Christmas tragedy bombing, mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't cover what, what happened uh, with the terrorist attack. Well, sure, because they, it would reflect poorly yeah. on their guy. So, and meanwhile, CNN has a huge international audience, so uh, which really transcends the, the political uh, climate in the United States. But um, if MSNBC is able uh, eventually to connect to the full progressive audience in the United States, then you'll see a lot more competition between MSNBC and Fox. Right now, Fox is, is, is doing much better than MSNBC. Caller? Yes. Um, I was interested. Um, you referred to reporters in the different 
newspapers, investigative reporters, but it appears that we don't really have investigative reporters. If we had, we'd know more about uh, President Obama and the comment on the national um, um, newspapers and and, um, and news programs just before he was elected or when he was elected, they kept saying, uh, who is this guy? Well, that particular form, and one of the reasons that the main um, main television um, networks and uh, newspapers, they weren't um, doing investigative reporting. They weren't bringing out the actual, not bad stuff, but just information uh, about the individuals. They were pushing an agenda. And it, it tickles me that you refer to Fox as agenda-driven when it's uh, blatantly evident, especially if you read today's newspaper, oh, column, um, <laughs> that th- those other ones are agenda-driven. They're not investigative reporting. Thanks for the question. Woodward and Bernstein, Dad? Well, hey, a couple of things. The fact that investigative reporting or investigative journalism might not do a perfect job doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It is true that it's very imperfect. It did not begin, though, that imperfection did not begin with the coverage of the 2008 election. To use uh, what, in my view, was a far more tragic failing as an example, was the investigative journalists did not uncover the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So we went to war based on, at best, a mistake, and worse, maybe even a deception on the part of our own government. And I do hold the media responsible when they don't uncover crucial things like that. But I'm not sure what your caller's point is about Fox. Right. Fox has an agenda. Anyone who thinks they don't, uh, I think, is blind. His point is they all have an agenda of some sort. MSNBC has an agenda. Right. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an agenda. My point is I don't see why Fox doesn't admit it. The New York Times, by the way, also has a nonsensical slogan, all the news that's fit to print. Actually, what's really the case with the New York Times is they print all the news that that they, the New York Times, deems fit to print. Right, they're the they gatekeeper. They print everything. They make decisions. So whether the, the medium is conservative or progressive, for some reason, they seem to have a tendency to want to paint themselves as totally objective and balanced and unbiased. That's never been the case. Uh, back in the Revolutionary War, newspapers were blatantly uh, on one or another side, and uh, when our country was first formed, you had newspapers that actually had names like the Democratic whatever, mm-hmm. uh, indicating that they were Democrats back in the uh, 1790s. Caller, you have a question? Yes. Mm. I, yeah, I know. I'm Mary. But I'm interested in what goes on. I'm 82 years old, sir. And what I want to know is, I just, I've noticed it before, but more blatantly the other day. Uh, Glenn Beck had been very hoarse, like he had a cold. He did have a cold. Then the next day, there's a duplication of a show that he had the week before where he told about his little girl reaching into his her mother's purse and his voice was perfectly fine but it was a duplication they are a rerun. On, they are on the television 
three times a day, like Sean Hannity, all day long and at night. Thank you. I'll ask. We have too much duplication. All right. These radical people. Thank you for the question. What do you have to say about that, Doctor? <laughs> well, I don't know. He should take a cough drop if he's hoarse. But actually, th there is a serious question there. Are these people overexposed? Right. But th the fact is, I I'm a great believer in, in the marketplace of ideas and people deciding what they want to listen to and watch in that marketplace. So if someone is overexposed, People will stop watching that person to some extent. They'll begin watching other people. On the other hand, sometimes uh, there's just such an enormous interest in a person that it's great that they're on three or four times uh, in a day. And, of course, this uh, differs based on who the viewer is and who the audience is. But I think these things are, are regulated just by the, the good old-fashioned marketplace. You uh, mentioned earlier about uh, the ability of us, uh, if, for instance, if I miss an episode of something, I can watch it on uh, uh, my computer, which is uh, tremendous. But we haven't really talked about TiVo and the changing uh, viewer habits that that offers up and what a tremendous, I mean, I don't know how I watched TV before. I agree with you completely. It's basically changed our lives uh, here in the Levinson household. I remember, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, arguments uh, with my sister because she wanted to watch one show, I wanted to watch another show. Much more recently, uh, before TiVo and DVRs, you know, you were out having dinner in a fine restaurant, but there was a great show coming up, and hey, give, you know, give me the check, and you drive home, you know, 80 miles an hour so you can get home so you don't want to miss the show. Obviously, VCRs, help to some extent with that, but, you know, something we haven't talked about at all, a sort of irony, uh, one of my next books is going to be called The New Golden Age of Television Drama, and we mentioned some of these shows before, whether it's NCIS, uh, whether it's The Sopranos, whether it's Lost, whether it's 24, I mean, these are great television shows, and one of the reasons that they're doing so well, and that they're being made, is that people can watch them now at their leisure. We don't have to be dictated to by the television schedule. We can decide when we want to watch a, a program. And that's an incredibly significant development, which actually has to do with some of what I talk about in new, new media as well, because it's the audience becoming the producer in a different kind of way. We each produce our own evening of television viewing, almost regardless of the times that the shows may be on television. And allows you to have a life too uh, you know it, it takes away one of the real negatives of being um, a television generation uh, and that being it decided where you were going to be at a certain time now i decide that exactly right and that's always good caller you have a question yes your discussion of media bias or complicity in an agenda coupled with touching on overexposure led me to ask this question how on earth could alleged journalists followed Tyler Woods around for 10 years while all that went on right under their noses. And everyone was shocked, shocked when he had to literally run into a tree in his driveway for people to notice it. Thank you. Good question. Yeah, it's a very good question. And this also uh, runs through the history of journalism. Uh, at JFK uh, right. was having... Uh, maybe even more affairs than Tiger Woods, but, but nobody knew about it when he was president. Nobody knew about it until years after he was uh, tragically assassinated. It's that gatekeeper thing again. 
Exactly right. You know, reporters and editors very often decide not to run stories. Uh, the public doesn't realize this. Whatever you see on television, whatever you hear on radio, whatever you read in a newspaper, and for that matter, whatever you read in a blog, is almost never unvarnished reality. It masquerades often as, well, hey, we're just holding a mirror up to reality. But that mirror is a very, very biased instrument. And, uh, you know, usually complete lies are just not blatantly told. But sometimes urgent truths are not presented. Our guest is Dr. Paul Levinson. His book is The New New Media. It's available at Amazon and all the normal places, uh, and it's uh, fascinating along these topics that we're talking about and the changing uh, environment in which uh, we find ourselves uh, able to be our own uh, television producers, our own movie producers, our own uh, bloggers and reporters, uh, and there's a certain amount of power in that. Um, I noticed in your list of books that you wrote a book, I guess, about Marshall McLuhan called Digital McLuhan. That's right, and I had the pleasure of working with McLuhan in the last few years of his life. In the late 1970s, I, of course, had read a lot of McLuhan's work before then, and one of the things I realized uh, pretty much back then is that McLuhan, when he was talking about the global village, this was back in the 1960s, was really talking about a world that hadn't yet come into being. Right, right. And actually, it's now come into being. So if you, if you think about Twitter and you think about YouTube, for the first time in history, the world truly is watching and listening and communicating as if we were all in the same village. Um, we had to study Marshall McLuhan. I hold a degree in the subject that you speech, uh, speak, uh, teach. And um, uh, the, the one thing I retain is that the medium is the message. And I don't know what year he said that. Uh, <laughs> well, 19, well he, he most famously said it in 1964 in his book, Understanding Media. But he actually said that a few years uh, prior to that as well. I mean, and, and that's a very important insight. In fact, that's everything we've been talking about today yep. uh, is in support of the medium is the message. It, it's not news. It's not late night comedy. That's content. What determines what impact that content has is how it's presented. So news presented on a blog versus news in a newspaper versus news on a, a talk show uh, like this on radio, all of those might be presenting the same story, but they can have a very different impact based on the medium that's presenting it. And we try to, you know, being a radio station, uh, our main competitor in a small town like this would be the, the daily newspaper. Uh, and as we go out and, you know, discuss this with our sponsors and our uh, potential customers, we try to bring that medium is the message um, a concept to them um, because of the revolutionary nature of not just radio as it continues through the, through the decades now, um, but as it continues to change and adapt to, to stay an important medium, and we contrast that with uh, uh, the decline in newspapers. And we're, we're hopefully effective at that more so than I am at this moment. But if you could understand that, that connection. No, that, there's, there's no doubt about it. And radio, it's interesting, when it first became significant back in the 1920s, Walter Lippmann, a great American political philosopher, had just uh, published a book called The Phantom Public, in which Lippmann said, you know, democracy in the United States 
is really a joke because nobody is really informed and they don't know who they're voting for. So what's the point of having a democracy? And that criticism was based on a world in which radio didn't yet exist. But but literally, as that book was being printed up and distributed, for the first time, people were listening to the radio in huge numbers. And, you know, whether people like it or not, the, the revolution uh, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought was very much of a radio revolution. His fireside chats mm-hmm. really galvanized the, the country. And uh, radio continues to be uh, really in in the front of the line of media that serve uh, the American public, because radio is so easy, you know, you can listen to it in your car. A lot of people um, miss that point. It's something I realized a while ago. You know, if if you're driving a car, if you're the driver, you can't really read a newspaper and get very far. You'll, you know, wind up behind a tree pretty soon if you're driving. You can't watch television. Uh, You certainly shouldn't uh, be doing something on the web. But listening to the radio really allows you to, to drive safely and get your news. And to the extent that, uh, that America is a nation still on wheels and, and still driving an enormous amount of time, radio plays uh, an extremely important role. There's a, a, a new stat that, that was out, too, in the last year or so that ranked things people do while uh, working on the Internet or, or playing on the Internet, just being on the Internet. Uh, and uh, I believe radio was the second thing. So in the in uh, the way people are now, and they multitask, they got a lot of things going on normally. Uh, when they're on the computer, the second most uh, um, frequent thing they have going on with it is the radio. I forgot what the first one was. Uh, nothing relevant to me, but uh, I thought that that was an interesting uh, thing as well. As you can do it while you're driving, you can also do it while you're surfing, so to speak, uh, on the internet. Which makes That's it right. It's, it's called multitasking, and human beings are inherently multitasking individuals. Our brains, this kilogram of matter in our heads, is able to do a lot of things at the same time. And media that take advantage of that uh, tend to be more successful than media that just appeal to one thing and insist that you can't do anything else when you're doing that. That's one of the reasons why reading, although literacy is still very high, and it's, it's wrong, as some people say, that somehow we read less. We're actually reading more now than we ever read before. But, but one serious problem with reading is that in order to read effectively, you have to shut everything else off around you. You know, if you're reading a book and you're really into it and someone starts talking to you, uh, you, you can't really continue to read a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but radio, again, uh, is amazingly adaptive, and um, it, it allows people to, well, obviously, eat breakfast, uh, drive, uh, jog, pretty much anything they want to do. And, yeah, if you're in an office and you're able to listen to the radio with earphones and nobody even knows you're listening to it, you could be working, uh, you know, doing important stuff based on what your job is and listen to the radio at the same time. Um, I know you're an avid TV viewer. I've only got you for one more minute. Uh, You mentioned the new 24 season. It's awesome. It's uh, incredibly well done for a television show, right? I love 24. I think it's one of the top five all-time television shows. And, yeah, I've, uh, I've reviewed the first four hours in my blog, InfiniteRegress.tv, and I think it's, it's shaping up to be one of the best seasons so far. Sopranos? 
Well, The Sopranos is like the Shakespeare of television. It really started on The Sopranos, this new golden age of television. It took chances, uh, you know, in the language, in the violence, it, it, with an incredibly compelling Shakespearean story, uh, almost uh, on the same level as Hamlet. You know, it's hard to recognize that now because Shakespeare did this hundreds of years ago, but I predict that hundreds of years from now, people will still be watching and talking about The Sopranos. In fact, college classes taught about it. Yeah. Uh, Big Love, one of my uh, new favorites. What was that? I didn't hear that. Big Love. Oh, yeah, Big Love is Spectacular. That's also off to a great new season. That also takes, uh, you know, some real chances. The, the, the thought that there could be a show about polygamous family, if anyone had suggested that even 10 or 15 years ago, that never would have gotten on television. But that's really compelling uh, acting. And the key with both The Sopranos and Big Love is that although most people are not polygamous, most people are not in the mob, the stories that are told there are stories everyone can relate to. The same kinds of problems that parents have with their kids, the same kinds of problems that people have in business. Even though in the case of The Sopranos it's an illegal business, those problems are something everybody can identify with. Appreciate the time. Fascinating interview, and best of luck uh, to you. We'll uh, talk again, hopefully, about uh, some of your other books. This is Dr. Paul Levinson. He's a professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. What would be the best website for people to uh, get in touch with your work? Best website would be Paul Levinson. That's one word, P-A-U-L-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N dot info, I-N-F-O. And you'll find everything you need to know about me, my whole life story there. Beautiful. And if you can't remember that, you can go to Amazon. It's got a, a nice page on him and all his books and everything like that. Thanks a lot, Doctor. Had a great my, time. My pleasure. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. There's Dr. Paul Levinson from New York City. Uh, we talked about new media and the changes that are happening, um, uh, not just to this generation we're raising, but to us that lived in the last generation or before that even. The Light on Light Through podcast and I hope you enjoyed Fred W. Hoffman's interview with me. I certainly enjoyed being interviewed by Fred. If you're interested in more information about my book, New New Media, you can find just about everything you want at newnewmediabook.com. And as long as I'm giving out URLs, let me tell you that we have some really great offers on the lightonlighttrue.com webpage. For example, in the right-hand column, you'll find a link to Angie's List, which will give you 25% off. eHarmony will give you one month free if you click on the link in the right-hand column of the lightonlighttrue.com webpage. LifeLock, 10% off and a free trial eMusic, 35 free MP3s. Avis, 10% off. And lots of other good offers. All of these you'll find on the lightonlightthrough.com webpage. Let me spell it out for you. That's L-I-G-H-T-O-N-L-I-G-H-T-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com. That's the sweet music of our promo suite. And you're going to hear promos from Mike Thinks News, 
the savviest podcast in town. You're going to hear from the night guy in Israel. Sean Farrell's patio book of my first novel, The Silk Code. We're just about out of time. I look forward to talking to you next time. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy. the Mike Thinks podcast, www.mikethinks.com. News and current events with an opinion. The Mike Thinks podcast. It's the news you missed. www.mikethinks.com. The time in Israel is uh, two minutes after midnight. Your life is ticking away, moment by moment. Your coffee is getting cold. The time in Israel is... 41 minutes after midnight, and that's true, by the way. Hi there. Do you think this world is surreal enough? Join me for an exploration of the most surreal aspects of this world on a podcast gone horribly wrong. Interviews with creative people, 100 word stories, short essays, and much, much more. Find me at nightguy.kaitafit.com. Come and join the fun, and may you never have to listen to music you don't like. <laughs> Did you hear the music? The Locus Award-winning novel by Paul Levinson comes to life in this free podcast novel. Journey into the ancient world, witness the wonder of ages past, Join Phil D'Amato in a struggle against forces both ruthless and unseen. Visit www.thesilkcode.blogspot.com to learn more about the author and the novel. And subscribe today at patiobooks.com.